Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 125 of Level Up, 60 minutes of live Q&A where your questions chat and votes drive the show. My name is Stefan Brendel, and I'm a regional manager at APMG. As we get on the way today, please let our social team know your name and the city you're joining from. As always, we really love to get to know our audience and get everyone involved. My colleagues, Ella and Adriana are online, and they will post a link in the chat to vote up the questions that you would most like answered, and of course, for you to add your own questions. If your question is selected, your name will appear in the credits at the end of the show. So get yours in early and stay with us to see that happen. Also, please do take a moment to like, comment, share, and subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything, and it really helps new people discover our content. The topic for today's show is how to build a culture of collaboration. We all feel that the collaborative culture fosters innovation by bringing out the best in employees. When we believe we are contributing to a team effort, we are more energized, productive, and adaptable. Collaboration creates a sense of community and participation. As a result, we feel more satisfied and less stressed. In short, collaborative employees are also engaged employees, and engaged employees will stay loyal to the organization they work for. In addition to employee retention, a reputation as a collaborative organization can also help in attracting talented employees. So how can you build this culture of collaboration? Today's panel have a wealth of experience in this topic, so please do take advantage of having this expertise available to you and send us in your questions. Okay, let's then get straight into the show and meet today's panel. Hello, panel. I start with Malini Yaganesh. She's a returning panel member joining us from Melbourne. Malini is a highly experienced business relationship manager. She spe specializes in nurturing high-performing BRMs and teams and facilitates APMG-accredited BRM certification courses. In her spare time, she writes about food, culture, and relationships. One of Malini's proudest achievements in recent times has been supporting her team to achieve six Hall of Fame inductions. Thank you for joining us, Malini. Hello. A very happy New Year's uh, to you, Stefan, and to all members of the panel, as well as uh, any everyone who's tuning in from around the world. Thank you, Malini. Another returning panelist is Danielle Hellebrandt, joining us from the Netherlands. Danielle is the owner and CEO of Better Brains at Work. She holds a master's degree of cognitive neuroscience and specializes on coaching executives. While she's also a columnist, podcast host, and professional keynote speaker. She has a passion in applying discoveries in neuroscience about the social brain to encourage her clients to make practical use of these findings. She's on a mission to create more brain-wise and inspiring workplaces where people can work with their brain and their heart. Goedemorgen, Danielle. 
Goedemorgen, Stefan. <laughs> Thank you, Stefan, for the introduction. And I'm looking forward uh, to today's show. And what a great topic to start the week. Yeah. Completing our panel today is Laurie Bowman, joining us from Brisbane, Australia, for another episode. Laurie has 30 years of experience in engineering and management roles on complex <clears throat> multidiscipline engineering and construction projects. He's also a trainer and advisor on planning, assurance, risk management, and control for projects, programs, and portfolios. Welcome back, Laurie, and thanks for the beautiful sunny live background for you. <laughs> Thank you very much for the introduction, Stefan. It's very good to be here, and I'm looking very much uh, forward to this topic. All right. Thanks, Laurie. Our question master for today is Suchitra Yakob, who's joining us from Bangalore in India. Hello, mm -hmm. Suchitra. Mm -hmm. Hello, everyone, and hi, Stefan. Great to be back again. Looking forward to today's show. Well, then, maybe have our first question, please. Sure. Our first question is from Henrik Aiton, <laughs> who wants to know, what are the characteristics of a culture of collaboration? Okay, Malini, why don't you start us off and then worry? Henrik, what a great question to, to get uh, today's discussion started. What are the characteristics of a culture of collaboration? Well, uh, I could I could write a very long list, but I will leave something for my fellow panelists to also discuss. So um, what, what I would like to say is at the heart of, uh, you know, a, a great culture of collaboration is the belief that everyone has that we actually achieve better outcomes by working together. Right? If people, when truly, uh, people truly believe that, then they'll be able to work out the processes, the systems, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the, the rules um, through which they will actually um, collaborate. But at the heart of that is that belief that, uh, you know, when we work together, we actually can <clears throat> achieve a lot more. All right. Thank you. Uh, to start us off, Malini, and uh, next will be then Laurie. Um, so first, I agree with uh, Malini's comments, and I would add um, that that people are made to feel welcome. That there's a very much an intention to encourage and welcome people, and that when when there's a really effective culture of collaboration, people go in with the intention to listen, not to preach, not to tell others what to do or how it should be, but to mm. listen to how others feel so they can learn and, and take on insights. All right. Thanks, Laurie, for these insights. Daniela. Uh, well, you know, culture is a collaborative thing and um, where we all have to contribute. And there are a few characteristics, I think. It starts with trust, with psychological safety. Um, am I feeling safe enough to speak up? to ask for help if I need your help. Um, am I able to speak up when something doesn't work out that well? Is there transparency, you know, so uh, we don't get these strange thought in our head and, and having these feelings of fear. Um, if there is a collaborative culture, um, 
we all are able to share our knowledge, you know, and just not play zero-sum games. And also, as managers of leaders of a team, we have to walk to talk, practice what you preach. And also, as Laurie said, communication is so important. A lot of companies say, well, I communicated. Why do they do the things I want them to do? Well, no, you did not communicate. You um, you gave an instruction, you know, you told people what to do. And communication is a two-way street. So there are a lot of characteristics. But for me, one of the most important things is that you feel there is this energy of trust, of psychological safety. Thanks, panel. What a great insight uh, with the first question already. Um, so thank you very much for this. So Chitra, um, I hope that Hendrik is um, is happy with this. Hendrik, when you listen to uh, to us, how about the next question? The question from Rose: In your is the most principle of collaboration, trust, empathy, positivity, clarity, or accountability? So Danielle and then Laurie. Uh, Rose, thank you for this questions because it's all of that. It is empathy and positivity and clarity and accountability. It's a lot of things. And you really, as I said earlier, you have to walk the talk. You really have to spread the energy that there is empathy, positivity, clarity, accountability and there are so much more things so um they are all of the utmost important and the most important thing is do you really give that feeling of trust and energy is that there in your company so everyone feels the things that you written down in your question so all of them rose and much more okay good well then, Laurie, how about your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree that they all are very important. If I had to say which one was most important, I would almost say that trust is the outcome. It's almost like the holy grail. And, and once you've established trust, so much can happen. And the mechanism to establish trust is through empathy, positivity, clarity, and accountability so it's all they're very complementary and overlapping but I, I really think trust is if you had to pick one i'd, I'd, I'd go for trust um, slightly over the others all right um well thanks laurie so you open up the ranking with 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 uh, putting trust on top malini what's your thoughts on that uh laurie just spoke what was in my mind you know, I, I think uh, I, I do agree with, with Daniel. All of these principles that Rose has listed are important. But, uh, you know, when you have empathy, positivity, clarity, accountability, etc., cetera, uh, you will end up, uh, you know, building trust. One other uh, principle or, or value that I'd like to add to this is respect. Right? Uh, because you build collaborative uh, relationships, um, you know, through through. Uh, creating um, uh, conditions for mutual respect, and I think that's really important. All right, so so maybe we can summarize to Rose that this will be. It is like trust is the result of all the things you mentioned plus respect. Okay, thank you very much. 
And uh, then, uh, Suchitra, let's go to our next question, please. We have a live question from Diane. Are team building yeah. and sensitization workshops sufficient to encourage collaboration in multinational and agile organizations? All right, so Danielle starts us off. You're very fast this morning, Danielle. And then Laurie. I had a good night of sleep. <clears throat> um, thank you, Diane, for this question. You know, in my experience in all those years, I think um, as a company, uh, one of the most important things is who are we going to put in a position with power? It starts with that. Who is responsible for a team and for an organization? And thus that person walk the talk and is that person also able to put his or her ego a little bit aside to show vulnerability to show um that there is compassion and trust etc etc and it, of course competence is also very important but also emphasis on the type of person who is in charge and then there are all those things you mentioned of course um sensitization workshops um looking at the me who i who am i what are my strengths and what are the things i'm not so good at that's also a very important thing and is there enough trust, there we are again, that I'm able to ask for help to my supervisors, to my managers and to my colleagues? Um, so it takes a lot of, it takes some work and encouragement. You have to facilitate that. But an important thing, as I said in the beginning, is who is responsible for the team, who do you put in a position of power? Does he or she walk to talk? All right. Oh, okay. Thanks, Danielle. Laurie, how about your thoughts? Uh, well, firstly, I agree on the, the importance of leadership and for them to demonstrate for leaders, the opportunity for leaders to demonstrate the right uh, collaborative uh, type of behavior. Um, in addition to team building, exercises, which, which I haven't specifically been involved in um, team building exercises for the point of team building, but what I've seen very useful is things like um, things like risk and opportunity workshops within projects. Um, as a byproduct mm. of these workshops, if they're run well, really are very, very useful team building exercises because you'll have different groups, different individuals with different values and they'll come in, they'll have to collaborate. Typically, there'll be a conflict between the interests of two different groups and they'll have to settle on a compromise and, and come up with a holistic plan. So certainly planning workshops, risk and opportunity workshops, um, in my experience, when they're run well, if they've got a good leader, as Danielle pointed out, I think can be really effective ways for helping build that, that team uh, cohesion and collaboration. And the other aspect, I guess, extending on what Danielle said, for the opportunity for people to understand themselves really well. What are, what, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Where am I developing? And when it comes to multinational collaboration, extending that and even having a, a mindfulness of different cultures and different countries, um, how some of those behaviours <laughs> can be a little bit different. Um, something I found very interesting learning out learning about about seven years ago was Hofstede's cultural index where 
um, there's a factorial analysis that's being done from people from different countries that shows there's certain types of behaviour, certain um, ways that we respond when there's a significant difference in power relationships or di- different um, orientation between uh, short-term versus long-term thinking that different countries tend to exhibit as well. So to be mindful of that when we're working in multinational teams and making sure that we're understanding ourselves well but also trying to be empathetic and understand um, the cultures of, of some of the other players who we might be working with as well. Oh, thanks, um, um, Laurie. Yeah, that, that reminds me of APMG that we are a multinational company as well. Uh, and yes, I exactly know what you're talking about. <laughs> thanks, Malini. Your thoughts, uh, Diane. Uh, it's really great that you're joining us uh, from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I think I, I agree with everything that Daniel and, and Laurie have said, right? Uh, and I think there's there's a, a place for um, uh, workshops. There are points in time when people will come together, you know, with a certain um, purpose, you know, in mind, and there'll be some activities all geared around that. Uh, and and as uh, Laurie rightly said, sometimes they might you might actually bring together groups that have different points of view. So hopefully by the end of the exercise, they'll be on the same page. The trick, I think, is to actually ensure that that is sustained beyond, you know, those those new ways of thinking and, uh, and, and new aspirations to collaborate, you know, that you want to actually ensure that they extend uh, beyond these workshops and they actually become part and parcel of this is how we work every day. Uh, and, and being able to sustain that, that momentum, embedding that into, uh, into your day-to-day work practices, I think that is actually really, really critical. And this is where sometimes I find organizations trip up because they bring in consultants who, who run these workshops and it's very exciting. Uh, and people forget about, forget about you know, what they learned or what they experienced soon after that. And they, they really struggle to, to apply it. Um, on a daily basis, uh, and and I'm really glad Laurie mentioned Hofstede because uh, Hofstede's work on cross-cultural, um, uh, you know, uh, management uh, is 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 sort of my go-to framework as well. Uh, you know, when I work with multinational organizations and I do cross-cultural training, uh, it's a, he's written a wonderful book. Uh, I'll drop the the link uh, in the comments, and um, uh, I would recommend it to to everyone who's interested. Uh, in building cross-cultural collaboration. Oh, thanks, Malini, and thanks for mentioning Hofstede. Um, but we are now, we have a lot of questions to answer, so let's just move on with the next one, uh, Suchitra, please. A question from Sean. How do you fix a culture where collaboration isn't happening and the environment feels toxic? Oh, okay. <laughs> Danielle, Laurie, okay, and then Malini. Oh, Sean, I feel you. I feel you. Um, I worked too many years in a toxic culture, and I didn't know how to get out. So my first question would be: Is it just you who are not in a very good place, and it feels toxic? Or are other people also sensing that? And I think toxicity in a culture is a systemic thing. And it's really, really difficult to 
get out. Because as we know from uh, brain uh, research, neuroscience, that if there is a culture of fear and toxicity, people are afraid. And with an anxious mind, people cannot feel straight. They have just this huge anxiety feelings in their brain and their nervous system and in their whole body. So people can cannot think clear. To put it a little bit bluntly, in a, a culture where there is a lot of toxicity, people are not smart because it blocks all doors in our brain uh, that we need to think and feel properly. So there is not there's not much good coming out of that. So how do you fix it? I don't know. And I can tell you, I have a lot of experience with that. Um, one of the things I did, and sometimes with the shit hits the fan, you can get out. But that's the last thing one should do. But a, a toxic culture, it's it's... Oh, I feel with you. It's so difficult. And I wish there was um, three steps to get out of that or to fix that. But you need a lot of people who are aware of that, who, who dare to put the elephant in the room and say, this is going on. This is what we feel. We cannot work like that. And that takes courage and it takes power. And often if there's too much toxicity, people just don't dare to speak up. They're afraid. They're afraid to admit something. So that's why it is so difficult to get out. And that's why I'm sorry. I hope my other panelists have something more to contribute. <laughs> it is difficult, John. Take care. And it's, <clears throat> yeah, yes. thanks, Danielle. And it sounds like you, you, you better choose your battles wisely um, that you fight um, before, before make a decision to get out or not. Of course, of course, resort. of course, of course. Okay, uh, thanks, Danielle so and Laurie. Yes, it's it's interesting listening to Danielle talk about fear as being the, the root cause and when she was talking about the enabler as being psychological safety. In other words, making people feel safe is, is the cure and mm. and fear really is, is part of the problem. I'm very lucky to have mm. um, seen a couple of examples where um, a, a, a toxic culture, if you like, got turned around. Uh, one of them, we had a program director who introduced, so the, t the team was struggling. They were on a very complex project. They were, um, most of the leaders were afraid to share bad news, so they were always hiding bad news and, and uh, this sort of fear was really growing in the team. We had a new program director who came in who brought in a new culture they called Help Needed. So every um, month when the leaders would report their progress, instead of it being all about uh, uh, cost, schedule and scope, he introduced a fourth area that was help needed. So the leaders would come in, report on cost, schedule and scope. They would also share what help they needed, where they needed resources, complexities that they were struggling with. And when they shared these problems or these help neededs, he would dive in and do his best to, to help them and support them. So it was a very interesting uh, program in terms of a huge turnaround, a 180-degree turnaround uh, in the culture. Um, another example, and that was really down to one individual, one very good leader who understood uh, how important it was for teams to feel safe. Another example, I was very lucky to be involved in a program and we had an organisational psychologist come in and help us. They were from a, an organisation called Human Synergistics 
and they did a, a um, they actually did a survey or a cultural uh, survey on the organisation, and they had a very simple system that would measure the health or the the um, the culture of the organisation using three very simple um, categories: constructive, being um, teams and, and individuals who could deal with problems and differences and solve problems together. There was aggressive, which meant that people were tended to prioritise their own interests and uh, put that ahead of the organisation. And then there were passive people, which were just as damaging as the aggressive people. And these would be people who would not express anything. They would just go with the flow or whatever was happening with the organisation mm. and wouldn't be very proactive. And by measuring these three, by con- conducting surveys, they could measure these three attributes and then monitor them uh, over time. So with this particular organisation I was involved with, at the time we came up as a very passive um, organisation, which is a little bit quite common with government um, sort of organisations, but it really gave us a good benchmark. Um, and with organisational psychologists, we worked on so- psychological <laughs> safety that uh, Danielle was touching on before. Another interesting one was storytelling. So having leaders who were prepared to tell stories and be vulnerable of a group, which really helped others who were on the program um, to also realise that it was okay to be vulnerable, to share problems and things like that and to work together. So, yeah, two very tough situation being in a, a toxic environment, but there, there certainly are uh, some solutions out there. Thanks, Laurie. Yeah, <clears throat> looks like we all have uh, been in a situation where we have perceived some kind of toxic environment. Uh, Molini, your thoughts? So... Um... Evolving culture um, is is one of the key things that business relationship managers do, um, you know, within within organizations. So uh, this is something that we we sort of discuss extensively as part of the business relationship management professional um, course. And uh, Sean, I don't know what your personal situation is, but if if you have some degree of of control. Over the situation, right? It doesn't have to be, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to be uh, the person responsible for fixing all the cultural problems in the organization. But to the extent that you have some influence, right? Some of the things that you could consider doing are um, reviewing, you know, what sort of language do we use in this organization, and can we, uh, if if we make small changes to the language, does that actually um, you know, lead to some shifts in behavior. So, for example, I worked in an organization where, um, you know, different teams within within um, the technology, you know, division, um, they were just working in silos, right? They, they were simply not, um, not keeping each other informed. Left hand wouldn't know what the right hand was doing. And over time, there was a lot of animosity that was created because of these behaviors. So one of the things, uh, one of the key characteristics, right, that I noticed when I went into this organization was that when there's a process that actually involves multiple teams, um, you know, one team would work on it and they would simply throw things over the fence, literally, to, to the next team, right? It wasn't actually a very smooth handover, not setting them up for success. And sometimes these teams would actually refer to each other as clients, uh, I started using the word partner. I said, well, you know, these are teams we partner with. What are we providing to our partners, et cetera? And 
uh, whenever someone used the word client, I would actually try and gently correct them and encourage them to use the word partner. Uh, and and that actually, over time, uh, did get people to start thinking quite differently about the teams that we that we work with. That they are really partners. Um, you know that we should be work, you know figuring out a way to work with more effectively. So so Sean, perhaps that is something that you could try. It's a small thing, but please don't underestimate the the impact that it can have. Oh, thanks. Great guidance, Malini. Thank you for that, um, Danielle. You, you, you mentioned you would, would like to add something to that. Thank you, dear uh, uh, Malini and, and Laurie, for giving example where it did work. Um, the things I was talking about is if leadership doesn't see and feel the toxicity because they don't really care. Um, and if they are themselves toxic, because the beautiful examples you mentioned, there are a few people who see and feel, who are in a position to do something about it, to get a consultant, a psychologist, to um, take in someone who is experienced in business relationship management. These are the examples where there are openings and there where there are people who see and feel it and want something to do about it. The maybe a bit extreme examples I mentioned was where there were people in a certain position who could do something about it, but just didn't want to see it. You know, they said, we have an open culture, uh, we work together, there's a lot of wonderful communication, etc., etc. but it was window dressing. It was window dressing. And in your beautiful examples, there were people who really felt it, who saw it, and who did something about it. And the, the example I was mentioning was where people in certain position just didn't see it or didn't want to see it. Wow. Thanks, panel, for these very good insights. And Sean, um, what a question you brought up. Um, so thank, thanks for that. Uh, so Chitra, um, why don't we move on? We have another question from Henrik Aiton. Are there any ideas a panel can share about how to break the barrier between lip statements of collaboration and actual daily life in an organization? Well, panel, I think um, <clears throat> the, the, the previous question or your answers to the previous has covered a little bit, but maybe you want to add something, then this will be a chance to reply to Hendrik. Um, <clears throat> Laurie, why don't you give us a start? Well, <clears throat> it is a, a very tricky one. So it's always, so by lip statement. So if there is somebody who has a goal or an aspiration a collaboration, that really is a good thing. And that really is the starting point to have a vision and to verbalise that, particularly if it's coming from a leader. That that next step really is um, once that vision is in the practice of it. So really embedding it within teams and within an organisation and creating those opportunities. So there's it's one thing to create that vision. The next step is to, to get on the mission of, of actually delivering that. And whether that means... Um, the leader who has that aspiration needs to create that environment and demonstrate it in some way. That that really is uh, the next step in the process. Right. Thanks, Laurie and Molini. Um, you would like to to add something? 
Um, I think uh, Daniel raised a really great point in the previous question that, you know, uh, we can only make change when, um, you know, there's some conditions in place. There must be at least some people that actually acknowledge that we need to we need to have collaboration, that we need to fix the culture. So, so Henrik, I'm going to assume that in the case of your your question, that um, there is some desire in the organization to to break that barrier, right? And they actually want to get on ahead. Um, I actually something that I I do with teams, which which um, really works very well. Uh, I actually get them to to work individually and collaboratively around specific questions. Um, uh, you know, addressing barriers to good collaboration. So first, I get them to you know think about all the barriers to collaboration that there are, and then I get them to sort of go, how might we you know, remove this barrier or how might I remove this barrier? And you'll be surprised, right? Uh, senior leaders actually do not need to come up with all the answers. Right? That's, that's, not, that's not their role at all. Actually, all the people who work on the ground uh, often would come up with the best answers because they are the people who are, you know, who, who are, um, uh, you know, who have, who have the best knowledge, uh, they're on the ground. Uh, but what what leadership needs to do is to actually create safe spaces where you know candid conversations can occur, where there's respectful listening, um, you know, and and they need to make sure that they walk the talk, right? So, I would suggest Henrik, uh, you could even just have a, you know, make this, uh, you know, like a like a themed thing, like a themed conversation that you have at regular intervals. How might we, you know, address one of the collaboration challenges? All right. Okay. Thanks for the guidance then. Um, so Chitra, um, I think Hendrik should be, should be happy with this reply, including the previous question. Okay. So we go to the next one. Our next question is from Paul. Do you have any tips or suggestions for building collaborative culture with hybrid or remote working arrangements? Hybrid or remote working arrangements. Okay, Laurie, please kick us off on this one. And then Malik. <clears throat> well, this, yeah, so this is a really tricky one, um, obviously. And uh, I think certainly for me, my experience going through COVID, I learnt a lot about this. And it really is, I think there's an increased need to check in with people. So often there's a lot of social cues and things like that you pick up. Uh, in the office that aren't so accessible um, when people are working remotely. So having more regular meetings, shorter meetings, which they do generally tend to be um, when they're virtual, in my experience anyway, but having them more regularly and asking questions um, very, very similar to Malini's point um, earlier on about asking people how to overcome communication challenges, asking people at the same time, how are you going? Is there anything that we can do to improve things and, um, and that sort of thing? Another in project work, which is the majority of the work that I do, is it's really uh, more important to keep things simple. So a lot of the complexities of sort of project life, you can sort of deal with them when everyone's co-located and they're naturally taking things in and picking things up from each other, but more so than not when teams are working remotely, keeping things simple um, I've found to be a more important principle to um, just to avoid the risk that people are going to be sort of drifting off and doing 
All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Laurie and Malini, please. Paul, your question is so topical. This is something that we are all, um, you know, grappling with um, ever since uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, uh, has started. Um, and I, I and I agree with everything that that Laurie has suggested. What I would also, um, you know, what I would also add to that mix, right, is um, transparency, right, which is which uh, I meant I referred to that earlier. It's it's one of the building blocks of of collaboration, right? Uh, I can't really collaborate if, collaborate effectively with someone if I don't know what they're doing, where they might be. Uh, you know, some overlap or touch points in our work where we could collaborate, et cetera. So it's really important when 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 you're working in a hybrid mode that everybody is still able to make their work um, quite transparent. And you could do that through, you know, regular stand-ups, um, you know, using shared spaces to, to keep track of the work that's being done, um, you know, uh, uh, go through a process of collaborative conversations for uh, prioritization and problem solving. All of those things um, will certainly help. Something else that you also need to be quite mindful of when when we um, when we work in a hybrid mode is that uh, we need to keep multiple channels for communication open or multiple modes of communication open. Um, so you know people who are uh, joining a meeting remotely, for example, uh, there's a very high um, risk of them um, being too quiet, not getting an opportunity to participate uh, in meetings. So whoever is um, facilitating the session needs to be very mindful <clears throat> that they actually give everyone an opportunity um, to uh, provide input, right? share their insights, um, uh, contribute to decision-making, etc. And you might also want to consider that some people might be comfortable speaking, some people might actually be more comfortable in writing. So you might have to come up with different ways in which um, you know people can actually participate in that in, in, in conversations. Right? So be more purposeful about um, you know how you bring people together and and how uh, you know how you can get the best out of everyone. I think that that would be uh, my tip for you, Paul. All right, thank you. And uh, then Danielle, please. You know, when we are talking, I was thinking, aren't we a little bit mixing up collaboration and cooperation? Because for me, cooperation is. You help me with something, but that I'm responsible for, and vice versa. And for me, collaboration is more like a shared ownership and a shared interest in outcome. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, teamwork is the key to success. But, but it's a challenge in itself. It requires that people manage their egos, develop humility, uh, communicate effectively, resolve conflicts, and above all, um, commit to one another and to a common goal. Mm, okay. Thank you very much. Um, so, Chitra, why don't we move on to the next question then? We have a question from Rawls. What techniques can be used to balance levels of collaboration with people who are more extroverted and people who are more introverted? 
Well, that is a, that's an interesting view. <laughs> Laurie, how about sharing your thoughts first? Um, thank you, Ros. This is a really good, good question and a very common dilemma when you're looking for collaboration and you'll have a lot of people coming in with all sorts of enthusiasm and things like that. And I think uh, Malini actually touched on this a little bit in the, with the last question. And it's about um, just having that awareness, um, particularly if you're a leader who's, who might be um, responsible for coordinating the collaboration or anything like that, to be aware that everyone has different communication styles and some people will feel more comfortable. Some people learn by, by actually speaking and verbalising their thoughts and that there might be others who might have extremely useful and valuable um, ideas to share with the team, but they, they might be doing it internally, processing and things like that. So creating the opportunity either by giving those individuals space, asking them individually, and even giving them um, different forums to express themselves. So, for example, by you know responding to a survey or providing a written submission rather than sort of putting them on the spot and asking them to, to sort of compete with other voices that might be in the room and things like that. So being aware um, that, you know, you've got different personality styles and some people like to engage in different ways and creating those those pathways for people to share their ideas through, through different mediums. Mm -hmm. Oh, thanks. Um, thanks, Laurie. And uh, we, we might sometimes hope that this is not too much artificial um, to encourage other people a bit more introverted, but um, good advice. Thanks. Danielle. Uh, Ross, indeed beautiful questions because there are very extroverted people, very introverted people and everything in between. There are a lot of shades of grey. Um, and there are also ambiverts who are sometimes extrovert and sometimes introverted. And um, Extroverted people, you know, they, they, they arrange their mind and their way of thinking by speaking and maybe think at a certain point, oops, maybe I should have thought first before speaking. And the more introverted people need some time to digest before they say something. Uh, for me, I work with a wonderful tool. It's called MapStyle and it's uh, associate cartography. And we work with people because we're all travelers in our own life. And there are a lot of travelers with us on this journey called life on the planet and we do it very interactive and we know we travel through our own life and the way other people see uh, things and the other way people express themselves uh, so there are a lot of tools for that but also knowing from yourself if you're more an introverted person or an extroverted person and knowing that from your colleagues or the people you work with it is so helpful that i also give the people who are more introverted time to speak um uh, take a little bit more time to let them reflect on their thoughts or say certain things and not just because we live in a very extroverted society and the people who are the loudest you know take the most space and we, unfortunately we listen too often to them so also be aware of the beautiful minds who are a little bit more introverted and there are a lot of tools to do that but we have to be aware of that Okay, thanks, Daniel. Yeah, don't we know all these 
kind of people who uh, just uh, look like being introverted say very few things, but these things really matter and they're really in substance. And mm-hmm. then there's the opposite, of course. Malini, please, your thoughts. <laughs> Roz, I, I love your question because, um, you know, what, what you're essentially, uh, you know, acknowledging is that we cannot take a one-size-fits-all approach, that uh, there's there's diversity, um, you know, in... in um, uh, in organizations and and you have called out one type of diversity you know extroverted versus introverted but different you know people can have all sorts of uh different um uh, you know ways in and needs uh in terms of collaboration so something that i an experience that i had quite early on in my in my career now when i think about it you know uh, uh, i find i think it's funny but um, I, I once worked with a, a manager who was a first-time manager, and uh, she felt that we needed to have, um, you know, more more collaboration in the organization. And so she started doing two things. One, she would copy everyone in every email, right? And we would have meetings every day, and everyone would get invited. Everyone, as in everyone she could think of. What that ended up creating was uh, it put off a, a lot of people. It was just too much noise, and we didn't really, you know, get good, good get to good outcomes. Um, and I've reflecting on that experience, I've since learned that, uh, you know, one way to, to cater for, um, you know, that was an extreme example, right? But in the case of say extroverted and introverted people, for example, you know. Um, one, one something to consider is perhaps you actually need to balance, um, you know, meetings and and in-person engagements and so on, with with some days when it's quiet. Okay, when I say quiet, I mean relatively quiet. So, for example, you might have a meeting-free Friday, for example, right? So that actually gives people who um, draw their, um, uh, you know, draw their. Uh, um, inspiration or or sense of fulfillment from from quietness, it gives them sufficient time, uh, you know, to focus deeply on something that uh, you know that uh, you know they consider important, uh, without actually having to f- feeling obliged to to attend um, many meetings. So uh, there are there's actually these days quite a lot of material uh, out there, a lot of books that have been published on um, you know quiet people, you know, versus there's quite people, introverts versus extroverts, Ross. So I think you're onto something really good there. So keep keep um, digging into that a bit more. Thanks, Malini, and thanks, panel, for great guidance uh, to Ross <laughs> about uh, this particular question. Um, um, so, Chitra, we have time for at least one more question, right? Yes, and we have a question from Jane. Which team building activities have you seen succeed <clears throat> at building rapport and collaboration in a team, and why were they successful? Okay. So, um, panel, who who dares to make the first uh, attempt for replying to this question? Okay, so it's Laurie and then Malini. Thanks, and then Daniel. Uh, so, so my example, it, it's not specifically a team building 
activity, but it's a, a nice little icebreaker that I use in project planning and uh, risk management workshops. It's called the uh, secret recipe party. Particularly, It's particularly useful if you've got a group of people from different backgrounds who don't know each other very well. And, and basically, you have a bag which will have a, a whole um, suite of different ingredients in it. So it might be sugar, basil, chilli, garlic, noodles, chicken. And everybody within the group needs to pull out one of the ingredients and they keep it to themselves. And you then ask the group to go around and find other people who they think might be suitable for making a dish. But you're not allowed to tell people what's on your card. You can only give a clue. So, for example, if yours was sugar, you, you could say, oh, I'm very small and white and sweet mm-hmm. or something like that. And you go around and form the, the teams, then go around and form groups of people who they think might be suitable for creating a dish. And then once you've, the teams have found their group, they share what their ingredients are and they need to collaborate together to come up with a dish, a dish and then they pitch it to the wider group to say what their dish is. And the reason I find it really useful is firstly it gets teams talking to each other and mixing and mingling, but it actually becomes a, a mm. bit of a metaphor in itself for the way that you want teams to work on projects. It helps teams realise that you need a mixture of different ingredients. So you need diversity in ingredients. You need to take on different ideas and, and come, up with, come up with things. So for me that's a, a nice little icebreaker that I've found, particularly when you're dealing with groups who come from diverse backgrounds and that sort of thing. All right. Thanks, Laurie. And Malini, please. Jane, uh, my personal um, favorite team building activities are the ones that that involve, um, you know, play. Because when we are playful, we tend to um, drop our inhibitions, right? And we can we can form human, deeply human connections with other people over laughter and over being you know, um, lighthearted, not taking ourselves overly seriously. Um, so, so for example, um, it, something that I use in my workshops a lot is is Lego, uh, and I get people to to construct, um, you know, all sorts of uh, uh, interesting uh, interesting shapes. You know, to um, um, to to uh, it might be to answer a question: How might we? you know, improve collaboration. And uh, they might have, uh, I might actually give them, um, you know, some Lego pieces that involves characters from Star Wars or, or whatever. And, and and they have a great time uh, crafting this this narrative, um, you know, which is which is hilarious and creative <clears throat> and it's tactile, right? So it, it, it actually works. It works very well to uh, trigger uh, creative thoughts. And it's quite different from what they would normally do at work. So it's not, uh, you know, uh, it's not boring, mundane kind of uh, work activity. It's it's fun. So anything anything that actually um, involves that element of playfulness would be my go-to technique. All right. Sounds like uh, from Laurie and Malini, like you you you're pretty much on visualization, which we know is always a good good thing to move forward. Let's let's hear what Danielle um, uh, has to say about this. 
Oh, I agree with both of you. And uh, Marlene, you said it so beautifully. We need a little bit of storytelling. We need playfulness. And as I'm a systemic thinker, um, it's, it's nice to do something in a group and see different points of view. And as I said, I think by the, at a, um, a question before this question, I used a lot of things, but at the moment I'm very fond of this MapStyle uh, workshop. Um, it's made from uh, um, Sebastian Wampa. He was is a cartograph. He made the shell maps. And dear younger listeners, I'm that old. I didn't have navigation when I was 18, 19. We had, I had to drive with a map on my lap and find my way. So, and this cartograph, he's also a psychologist. So he put psychology and the maps together. And then we, as a group, we travel over that map. And as we only have limited words to express so many feelings we have that we don't really have the words for. And for me, as, as a traveler, I love that walking with people over that map. Everyone has a certain spot on the map. You know, the more people who are more extrovert and open and the more introvert people and the more go-getters and the doers and there are the more helpers. And we travel to each other's place and life and we feel the feeling what it is being in that place and we do role plays and this traveling ex uh, um, experience and having fun with each other and telling each other stories about the world we're in i love that tool we have so much fun it gives so much um, uh, th there are so much feelings coming up so that's a tool that i at the moment love to play and travel through. All right, thank you. So, so tools and visualization, playfulness. Panel, you did great. Um, and I want to thank you, our audience and our producers for the excellent questions um, today. I mean, they were really excellent questions, right? And I think there were a lot of people can take away from that. Um, panel, it's time for your closing remarks. So let me begin with Laurie, please. I, all I can say is thank you so much, especially to my fellow panellists, Malini and Danielle. I learned so much from you during that session. It was thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable. So thank you very much, uh, Stefan, for the opportunity to be involved on this very important and thoroughly enjoyable, playful topic. I love it. <clears throat> All right. Thanks, Laurie. And thanks for being here today. Danielle, your thoughts, your closing remarks, please. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much, uh, Malini and Laurie. And thank you, all listeners, for your beautiful question. You know, at the end of the day, I think you have to believe in working together. It's not a solo team. We have to have this uh, people first approach. And, you know, what unites us across the globe is our quest for meaning and the desire to do good and to do things with other people. And, you know, company is uh, an organization with real human beings of flesh and blood. So um, let's make it a place where we not only can work with our brain, but also with our hearts and where we feel safe and seen. All right, thanks. Nice. <laughs> Malini, your thoughts and your closing remarks, please. Um, this is my first uh, APMG Level Up um, you know, panel for 2023. And I think it's been a wonderful start. Um, 
so great to have your company, uh, Daniel, Lori, Stefan, and Sushitra, and to everyone behind the scenes, and of course, uh, everyone who's uh, who sent through beautiful questions. If you would like to know a little bit more about how we can actually uh, create or evolve cultures of organizations so we actually have sustained partnerships and, and collaboration, uh, perhaps you might want to check out the website of the Business Relationship Management Institute. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Good. Many thanks, um, panelists. Um, it was great to have you on the show today. Um, and to our listeners and viewers, if you would like to find more expert answers to audience questions, then head over to our website at apmginternational.com. There you can search through over 1,700 questions from previous shows. It's a comprehensive free resource connecting you with 180 experts from around the world. By the way, you can also listen to the audio versions of the shows on Spotify, Apple, or any other preferred podcast platform. Building a culture of collaboration is such an important topic that we devoted another show to it. And this is coming up this Friday on the 27th of January. And next Monday, on the 30th January, our panel will answer your questions to another hot topic, how to become a change manager. Please subscribe to the show if you like it. It will help us to improve, and we really appreciate that. And we will send you a personal summary of what's coming up and also information about how you could join us here on the panel and level up your career with APMG. Thanks, everyone. See you on the next show. Have a great day. Bye-bye.